in a Western, he'd be played by Jimmy Stewart. And about halfway through, he'd be like, don't you see? He keeps telling a different lie. He tells one lie and then he tells another lie. You can't believe anything this guy says. Meanwhile, my sister's got a plan to save us from the cordon. You gonna listen to her? A woman you've known for the last 20 years, or you're gonna go with him? Hey listeners, Chris here. And before we jump into the episode, although I would love nothing more than for you to get to continue listening to Jesse do his impeccable personation of Jimmy Stewart, don't worry, you will hear more later in the episode, I want to tell you about a couple of podcasts that Jesse and I made some appearances on over the past few weeks or are doing some co-promotion with. I was on the Finding Favorites podcast with Leah Jones, as was Jesse in the past few weeks. I talked with Leah about my love of tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, Pathfinder, Blades in the Dark, Lancer, the list goes on and on. And Jesse was talking about a couple of movies from the 1970s. It was really fun to be on with Leah. She is an amazing host, asks lots of good questions, and I can really see why she has a successful podcast talking to people about things that they love. You can find them at findingfavorites.podbeam.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we are doing some co-promotion with another podcast you might want to check out. It's called Big Campaign Stories, and it is an actual play podcast. What's an actual play? It's when you listen to voice actors or gamers play role-playing games around a table. Uh, The shows are usually edited, and they are an amazing combination of improv and gameplay. Um, Yeah, you should uh, give it a shot. It's in a world inspired by Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, which was the first book that we did here on the show. And it's really good. It's impressive to hear Jeff, the dungeon master, and his players really craft an inventive and free-flowing and action-packed and funny adventure pretty much on the fly. So check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at bigcampaign.com. And now... On to the second half of Jonathan Lethem's The Arrest. How the hell are you? Uh, good. I'm, I'm great now that I see you, friend. Um, the, uh, I'm good uh, in general. Um, Chicago is doing its best very best to make me not good i shouldn't say very best it could probably do a whole lot worse Mm, but basically the the weather has been about 34 and overcast and or rainy the last uh i don't know basically since i got back here i'm also excited because i rented my apartment for four months fuck yeah congratulations thanks yeah thanks you are starting to achieve some like escape velocity from uh, chicago yeah and uh, it's it's like sort of you know, I feel like it's responding to this with mm-hmm. kind of a dark and stormy mood. It's sort of like what, um, and and I think the tricky thing is I have to sort of be okay with spending some money. So I, I basically spent the day in cars, and trucks today, hauling my camper like way into the western suburbs in order to have the trailer brake and suspension worked on, which I'm bracing for like 
a major expense, yeah. but you know, uh, the cost of not dying on a road in West Virginia <laughs> is priceless. So <laughs> right, I know I was about to say, I was like, I think it's kind of infinite. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. No, if they, yeah. if they were to, if I knew for certain and they were to charge me a million dollars, I would be like, yeah, I guess so. I <laughs> yeah, right. like, guess I'll go ahead and pay that. Yeah. Um, is there a way know, to just, cash in a life insurance policy? Like in, yeah, if you don't die, can you if, bet against your, right. Yeah. Exactly. Can you do a, can you do reinsurance on life insurance? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The, uh, can you short so, yourself? Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. It, it's funny. I'm actually working on developing a podcast around similar ideas. Well, um, I love the campfire logo, man. It it looks like my oh. my home country. Uh, Lux, it literally, it that's a Luxembourg logo. It's got the, the lion has two tails. Nice. Yes, this uh, this lion has showed up on all of my racing kits since 2015. Oh. Uh, Wadi Wadi found it. Uh, like I was, it oh. was like one of the kits that he did for me. And I was like, I was, he was like, well, what do you want? And I was like, I was like, I want something vaguely European and vaguely soccerish. And he was like, okay. And he came back with this like bright green kit with these, with these lions, like in this like amazing crosshatch pattern with some fleur-de-lis. And I was like, yes, that's what I want. And then uh, uh, we've, we've put it on every camp, uh, we put it on every CBCG and, and now campfire kit since then. Google uh, 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 arms of Luxembourg right now. Okay. Or, or seal of Luxembourg. Arms of Luxembourg. And then do an image search. Oh yeah, yeah. That's 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 my line right there. <laughs> that's yeah. it. <laughs> that's my line, man. I'm, I'm a quarter Luxembourger. I didn't know you were a Luxembourger. I'm a uh, je suis un citoyen luxembourgeois. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I have a passport. Actually, the passport expired, but I am a Luxem. I'm a dual citizen. Holy shit! Really? Yeah, yeah. I'm an EU citizen. Um, what the fuck are yes. you doing living here? Good lord. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> It's a good, what the fuck am I doing in Chicago? If well, yeah, I, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, what would what would the other Luxembourgers think? Well, shall we get into uh, the arrest part two? Yeah, yeah, let's uh, let's do it. I think this one's actually going to be pretty easy um, to to recap. I think so. So, well, yeah, what I'll do is try to do about a one minute version, mm. and then you fill in with anything you think that I missed. Maybe I'll say 90 seconds. Okay. And then, um, because also, like, listener, you're supposed to read the books if you want to listen to our podcast. You don't have to. Um, but uh, this is not a Cliff Notes podcast. Uh, this is a read-along podcast. Um, so, um, but you could also get a lot out of the conversation, I think, based on this recap without, without spoilers. Uh, basically, uh, yeah, the part two begins... Um, and you have a note here that maybe I'll let you explain when I get to, but basically the blue streak, the supercar is sitting in the town and we are learning that the cordon, which is sort of the community of people outside of the peninsula who kind of protect the peninsula, but also kind of extract free food in a, there's a kind of subtextual hint of violence to all of that. It's sort of like tribute, but at the same time, we get the sense that the people on the peninsula are sort of back to the landers, and they, the cordon understands that the people on the peninsula are probably better at growing the food than they would be. So it's kind of, everybody kind of wins in the situation, but that, that balance is, is upset because they claim that there's another hostile force 
and that they want the blue streak, the supercar, as a weapon that they could then use to defend against that hostile force. One isn't sure if that's accurate or if they're merely angry at Todd Baum uh, for the way that he arrived in the first place, apparently doing some violence. Um, and so there are these rumors of, of impending conflict. And in the midst of this, um, we get the sense that Maddie, uh, uh, Journeyman's sister, and Aster, her partner, have a plan of some sort, and it has something to do with Quarry Island. And Aster has basically just said, oh, no, we're building a lighthouse out there in case the French ships come back. And everybody, Journeyman, I would imagine Todd Baum, I imagine Cormans, all sort of suspect that um, that's not really true, although maybe they're a little bit slow to catch on. The other thing that happens is the two guys who came from the cordon, Eek, and I forget the other guy's name. Walt. Uh, uh, Walt. The lovers are kind of dispatched by Aster to be involved in this plan as well. Uh, and, you know, Journeyman is, is sometimes comes and helps out, you know, like helps bring some supplies, but he doesn't really know what's going on. Um and there's this moment in the second half where Todd Baum tells a story about his female hitchhiker. Um, and it's kind of described as kind of like the peak of his captivating power over the community. Because um, he kind of loses his shit a little bit when he tells the story. Um, and it's a woman who he claims was kind of plotting to kill him and take over operation of the car. Which is a little bit of a nod to what the Corden wants uh, the community of the peninsula to do um, and what Journeyman at some point maybe was sort of plotting to sort of figure out if maybe he could do that. Um, I don't know that he would want to hurt Todd Baum, but like if they were to remove Todd Baum, could he pilot the Blue Streak? So all of this is happening. And then the Corden actually um, encroaches. Uh, they start kind of taking over farms. There's some violence. Um, Todd Baum is realizing that people are leaving. He claims that he's going to go along with this guy, Nowlin, and take him to Bath and that the Blue Streak can travel underwater. But everyone kind of suspects that because Maddie's out in the island, uh, that Todd Baum's actually going to go uh, to Crotch Island. And that is, in fact, what happens. Uh, Talbam drives the Blue Streak to the island under the seafloor, and there's a confrontation there. Um, and that confrontation is basically the climax of the book, and I won't tell you what happens, um, but what's left of the book is a little bit of aftermath, um, and um, I won't... Yeah, I think that's I think that's enough. But let me know mm -hmm. if you think there's anything that I missed um, that, you know, in order to understand our conversation, you really need to know. Yeah, I'd say um, the cordon does really kind of take over the town as everybody removes to Quarry Island. Um, right. They uh, they they even they even burned down the gazebo in Founders Park where near where the Blue Streak was parked, um, kind of as a show of force or intimidation. Um, a number of them end up at Spottisall Ridge Farm, which is the farm that Journeyman's sister Maddie uh, runs. Um, they're really, they really arrive and take over. Um, the, the only yeah. other detail I'd put in is I, I do think this was you know, pretty important in this, that the, the Blue Streak is 
clearly not good for the environments around it. Mm. Um, yeah. the, uh, it's sort of yellowing and killing the grass nearby right at the beginning of the part that we read today. Um, the blue streak has killed a deer that is just, you know, was just nearby it in the night, perhaps. Um, yeah. And there is some... Like its self-defense system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Decided yeah. that a deer was enough to, uh, you know, uh, warrant violence. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I think that does it. You know, I mean, the really, the really big plot points are um, everybody's going to leave. Todd Bomb's going to go with them. The cordon is encroaching. Confrontation on Quarry Island. Well, then I'm going to start with my first question for you, and I'm just curious what you think about what I would call both the benefit and the burden of post-apocalyptic literature. And one of, as I was reading this, one of the things that, a question that occurred to me was, is post-apocalyptic literature sort of replacing Westerns as kind of like our dominant myth-making literature? And also... Has it become, not just literature, but also film, TVs, has it become so widespread now that there, that the way it's written has changed because there's an expectation that the reader is familiar with certain things and that, therefore, you don't have to spend as much time explaining? Because this is a very sparsely written <laughs> novel when it comes to plot in some ways. And I'm wondering, do you feel like Lethem is sort of benefiting from the fact that this kind of scenario is familiar to the audience? And also, if he's benefiting from it, is he also suffering from it in some way? Hmm. too because there might be a burden to that because there's a sense of oh we kind of know what this story is that's an interesting question i mean basically you're getting at the idea of deploying tropes like what does a trope get you and what do you surrender when you decide to go with a trope um and then of course hiding behind that conversation is that there's nothing new under the sun um, as prior Walter says in angels in America, it's something you discover after your first theme party. It's all been done before. <laughs> uh, amazing line that I can never, I can never get rid of, but it's true. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good question because there is, I, I think there's an allusion to a John Wayne, um, movie in the last American chapter. I'm not mm. sure. I'm not um, as familiar with um, with those movies as I think do you, have you a, are. Do you have a page number? Um, I I can get one in just a second. But yeah, the the Last American was a chapter that really spoke to me, um, and I think it is towards the end of it. Um, I'll look for it if you yeah. want to keep going. I'm just I'm curious about that too. Yeah, something... there's certainly a lot of. I mean, there is meta. There's some metafiction going on when it comes to post. I mean, you have Todd Baum complaining about post-apocalyptic literature. And at one point he says, you can tell the writers want to be there, you know, <laughs> and you're like, Lethem's view of this peninsular community is actually quite complimentary yeah. in some respects, it turns out in the end, you know. And he, um, he references Station Eleven, which has a similar kind of feel to it in the HBO oh, yeah. version. That, yeah, like something terrible has happened, but the world has kind of receded to kind of a quieter, sparser, a little like friendlier kind of place, even though it's also shot through with these like moments of very surprising violence um, yeah. that, uh, that I think are really well done. 
Um, yeah. I mean, and there's a chapter in this book called post-apocalyptic and dystopian stories. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, this is another, another bit of, we are in a postmodern book in that it is, it is really self-referential. Um, okay. So is, is Lethem giving something up um, by basically setting himself in these, this post-apocalyptic setting? Um, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I like your idea that it is beginning to replace the Western as the traditional way of American mythmaking. That's a problem for us. That that because with the Western, for all of its problems in hindsight, we, which is essentially a, a colonial narrative, mm-hmm. um, you know, is one of. Um, uh, it's so hard to like parse all this stuff. It is one of sort of hope and new beginnings and fresh starts and fleeing the past and starting over. Of course, that's also coupled with, you know, destroying cultures, uprooting peoples um, and all sorts of like very bad things. I mean, um, you get all of those things in this book, too. You sure do. Um, but the, the reason why I think it's bad that post-apocalyptic and dystopian narratives are taking over our idea of the Western is that there are fewer positive it's a more it's a cynical is not the right word but it is mm. a less hopeful mindset from which to approach myth making like mm. if if the current american myth making process is imagining a completely fucked world um that's a real reflection on where we are as an environment and an ecology and a society um and yeah, I do think, you know, we, we do as writers tend to turn to the problems of the time to frame our narratives. Um, because without that, without doing that, it tends to leave, it tends to strand the narrative in a, in a pretty um, small place, which can be fine. Like that also is perfectly acceptable. Um, but, you know, you never write anything that's not a little bit political. Right. And and I think that, yeah, I think that that I, I do like that idea. And I think that Lethem is pulling from the Western as well. I mean, I think that oh, line, sure. the line that I found is, that's me, sweetheart, the last American. And I was like, God, that sounds like something John Wayne would say. Um, huh. And yeah, I don't I don't recognize it. Um, although, yeah, often John Wayne is represented, say, like in a John Ford movie as like the first American mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or the last American of a, the sort of American of a certain type who we had to dispense with in mm-hmm. order to become civilized. You know, the the violent, rugged American who had to, you know, basically conquer uh, another people mm-hmm. uh, so that white people could set up communities peaceful civilized quote-unquote communities in the american west yeah he's sort of he's a figure of kind of violent nostalgia um that that we use for yeah myth making about the american west and and the expansion of the country Um, yeah the, the the central theme of the western is sort of like the original westerns was like this is a wild and rugged terrain partially because of the indigenous people who lived here and partially because of the like roughness of the boom and bust economies and that had to be conquered in some way and there was some adventureness there was some advent there were some exciting adventures that happened but at the same time it was not a sustainable 
foundation for a society. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, the the sort of revisionist Westerns all basically kind of poke at that, you know, and, and just say, yeah, it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> right. Straight up. And, and and awful. And I, I think that, you know, if that's the sort of dominant narrative of the Western, the post-apocalyptic one is sort of like, yeah, everything's either must burn, is going to be destroyed, or must be destroyed in order for us to build something hopeful mm-hmm. again, which is a very bleak sort of, you know, recovery narrative around the whole thing. It it, it sort of elides the possibility that we might you know, nurture that which is valuable in our institutions and correct and reform that which is corrupt and evil in our institutions. Right. That would be that would be the really nice kind of, uh, you know, Marxist dialectical way of hopefully approaching um, conflict and growth. And then, and uh, you know, I think in this chapter, Sam, uh, not um, Todd Baum, is sort of railing against writers because he sees writers as wanting to burn it all down. Like he says, like, yeah. oh, you all want to go and live there, um, which suggests that Todd Baum is very happy in the kind of pre-apocalyptic world, which isn't a great world either. Um, yeah. Like Todd Baum is, is a dick. Uh, he's a power-hungry, um, toxic guy. Uh, he's, he's really, he's, he's a villain. Um, and, and he's think, trying to rebuild uh, as much as he can the world that exists. Basically, he wants to set himself up as like a Hollywood executive in Maine, yeah. <laughs> or the closest thing you could make. He wants to be the king of entertainment, yeah. you know, as far as far as I can tell. Well, because the thing that he's going to make is like, and and Journeyman hits on this that that he and Maddie are going to be the Adam and Eve of this new society, not in a, you get the feeling it's not in a like, like sexual and like, like procreative way. Um, But Bob might hope for that. Might. Yeah, maybe. um, But I I would guess that it's secondary to his desire to be the Genesis myth. Right. Like, I think that's what Todd bomb is after. He really wants to be the, um, the source material of this new society. Um, and it's a, it's a real unfortunate thing because the source material he's drawing from is this idea that he and Maddie have created this world through their, you know, their creation of this TV miniseries that has never been made. Um, he's kind of a, he's kind of a Colonel Kurtz figure. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he is a villain and he, you know, in the first half of the book, it's not entirely clear that he is a villain. He's mm-hmm. certainly disruptive. Yeah. Um, but there's, you know, there's a version of the book halfway through where maybe the cordon or some force like the cordon will be the primary primary antagonistic force, and you know, Todd Baum will need to be recruited mm-hmm. in fending them off. And in fact, Todd Baum himself promotes that idea. Um, and and the cordon is antagonistic, but really only because of Todd Baum. Mm-hmm. You know, because Todd Baum has, has disturbed the sort of equilibrium between the peninsula and the cordon. Yeah, yeah. It's a feudal society, and he represents a greater amount of power than they can bring to bear on the peninsula. So they want him reduced in some way. Right, right. And they get their wish. Well, and... and, and it that the plan that turns out to be the plan is basically to show 
the penance the, or the the cordon we have neutralized this guy mm-hmm. yeah you know uh so leave us alone and let's go back to the way things used to be i wonder in this chapter you know when when you get uh, characters in books that evince opinions about other existing books. Um, you always do the thing where you wonder, like, is some of this Jonathan Lethem's actual opinions? But then you're like, well, they're sort of vested in a character that we don't have a lot of uh, regard for or sympathy for. Um, I'm not a big Cormac McCarthy fan. <laughs> so yeah. so the section where he was slagging the road, I was really enjoying that. And I was like, oh, I wonder if Jonathan Lethem might be in my camp as well but um but uh, it it is a very very funny moment i haven't read the road but it is i mean yeah it is he basically points out some inconsistencies and he points out i mean this is also like a bone to pick that i have with kind of like the culture of the literary every now and again which is that sometimes it feels like a cool kids club yeah and that you know what what uh, Taubbaum is saying is that Cormac McCarthy is basically doing the walking dead but he throws in some biblical references and leaves out the quotation marks so he gets to be literary you know but he's basically you know what's the part you remember the scene in the basement with all the cannibals but of course it doesn't make any sense because you would need food to keep those people alive you know and and you know he's saying like look it's all entertainment and and Cormac is a bit of a fraud and uh yeah that kind of I, I don't know. I haven't read the book, but I, I certainly am that I I'm certainly open to that critique. Yeah. I, I think that sometimes that is, in fact, the case. Yeah. My problem with McCarthy is that it is so overly self-important and self-serious without any shred of humor or self-understanding to leaven it. Hmm. Um like if I have to read another fucking passage about biscuits and coffee and horses, I'm like, oh my god, Jesus, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it. I never. There's this. There's a um, kind of a poetic rhythm that the prose has mm-hmm. that I, I enjoy. Yep. Um, but I haven't read. Mo- I haven't read Blood Meridian. I haven't read The Road. I saw the movie. I read the New Mexico trilogy, and I was like, this is all right. You yeah. know, some very vivid descriptions of the landscape and vividly drawn characters. Um, I, I see from our rundown that we both have a question about Journeyman's character. Uh, yeah. Should we get into that or did I skip something? Cause, no, no, cause let's, my reading... let's go there. I'm, I'm, I'm really, that's one of the things that I'm actually, that I'm really interested in. Well, do you want to, what's your, I, I can ask my question or do you want to ask your question? I'll ask mine. Um, I'll, okay. I'll go for this. I, uh, so, like, you expect in a book like this that for the character to make some sort of change or development or realization or, you know, come around or anything like that. Uh, chapter 79 begins, his job was unchanged. Deliveries. From and to. Here and there. Jarred and jellied stuff. Pickles and pesto from Spotisol. Eggs from Proscenium Farm. Greens from Brenda's Folly. I love that last yeah. part. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Folly is the name of a farm. It's just wonderful. It's I love that. Wonderful name. Yeah. Um, yeah. My question is like, do what, what, how do you see Journeyman developing? We talked a lot in the last episode about the fact that Journeyman's role is a go-between. Um, his, his very title, Journeyman, implies a kind of like 
okay, uh, but not totally professional um, kind of guy. Uh, we know that he has spent his life filling the spaces between things. Um, do you see in the second half of this book, journeyman kind of fulfilling on the narrative promise that we're usually given that a character is going to change in a, in a really profound way? No. Um, and I find it very curious and I have a reading, I think that speaks to it. So awesome. I'm going to give you my reading and then I'm going to give you my theory Love it. about why. Yeah. So on, it's on page 264. Um, and this is where Todd Baum has begun his journey on the rocky main floor, uh, to, to, uh, Granite Island, Quarry Island. Um, and, Basically, everybody on the island is making preparations for Todd Baum to arrive, and Journeyman's there, but he still doesn't know what's happening. And like the cordon is attacked, um, and and he's sort of like uh, slowly, sort of figuring out what's going on. But they haven't explained the plan, and you, you, I sense they haven't explained the plan to him because they know he's Todd Baum's friend. They don't entirely trust him in his loyalties. And even if they trust that he's loyal, they don't entirely trust his ability to not slip up mm -hmm. and reveal the plan. That's my sense. So he's all these things are happening around him on the island. Um, and I'll just I'll start. Uh, OK, so I'll start right here. The talk changed again. Maddie spoke as though offering a tour of the island. It's bedrock. There's no tunneling through, she said. And the first stand is too dense. No way that thing can crawl up the lee side beach. So, this was Lucius. So he'll circle the island and feel his way up the quarry path. There's no back door. He does that or he keeps on. Him and Theodore Nolan, Journeyman pointed out, eager to be included. It was the only thing he knew. I saw them last night before they embarked. Is someone watching the beach? Lucius asked, ignoring Journeyman. We'll hear it coming, said Aster. So... What's the plan here? Journeyman asked. And does everyone know it except me? Was it Journeyman's imagination? Did all at the fire turn to him? Did some smile? Was Journeyman merely the comic relief in this story? He sat with his bowl on an upright section of tree trunk. His sister sat beside him. Ed Waltz came nearer and put his hands on Journeyman's shoulders from behind. Ed had been crying too. Eat, Maddie said. Yes. You'll need your strength for later. Journeyman felt the pressure of their averted gazes. I get it now, he said to his sister. The whole deal with this island. What is the whole deal with this island? You're throwing me that surprise party I always said I never wanted. I knew you'd guess, Sandy. So what about that passage reveals something to you? Well, I think it's there there's a lot of metafiction in this book, I think. And I I think, you know, Journeyman is basically joking about his lack of development as a protagonist mm -hmm. and the fact that he doesn't really play a role in the plot of this novel in any in any at least in the sense of taking action. Um he he does play a role. And and I think he's joking about that, you know, and I do I do think you again, we get that journeyman is smart and insightful, 
And so part of what he's doing, I think, is he's making a joke to everybody. Like, yeah, I can tell that you're not telling me what's going on. That does feel awkward. It feels like everyone's looking at me. Maybe some of you feel sorry that I don't know what's going on. So I'm going to make a joke about that to kind of like take the edge out <laughs> of it. And that's, on the one hand, that's sort of insightful. On the other hand, it's kind of the best he can do in that moment. Like they're, they're, they're planning to spring a trap on Taubbaum's like monstrous machine. And the best he could do is kind of like tell a joke that everybody's like, ah, good one. We're still not going to tell you what's going on. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, and you know, I mean, so my version of this question is like, what's the value of a hapless protagonist? You know, we had the same thing with John Percival Hackworth, like somebody who doesn't ultimately ever end up taking action and influencing things. And that's actually in the Diamond Age, Hackworth in the end does finally do something. Yeah. And Journeyman never really does. And... So what he becomes is sort of the lens by which we, the reader, realize what's happening in a dramatic way. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is another kind of narrative structure that I've never necessarily learned about, which is there is an interesting story here, but if you told it from Maddie's perspective, it might just kind of wouldn't be that interesting because she's too competent. She doesn't really have much of a flaw as a protagonist. I mean, she does have flaws, but she has the plan and the plan works and the plan works pretty well without a lot of struggle. Yeah. You know, that would be a boring story. It's like Maddie saves the town. Well, okay. So what happens? Maddie comes up with a plan. Is it going to work? Yes. Boring story. Um, and so for it to be an interesting story, you need suspense. And for there to be suspense, you need somebody who doesn't know what's going on. And all the reasons that Journeyman doesn't know what's going on make sense from a plotting and character point of view. Yeah. So that's neat. It's not like sometimes you don't know what's going on because the, you know, the writer or whatever just doesn't want you to know. So they're like... Yeah, uh, you know, there's. I can't think of a good example of this, but this happened. It's like I've got a plan. Trust me. Well, and it's, you're like, it's, why don't you just tell? I'll tell you on the way. You know, and it's like you could tell me in thirty seconds. It's not that complicated. You know, like there's. Well, just we've, pre- we've been know. through this just recently with with Neil Stevenson. Mm. You know, like there's like we we talked about this. I think in the Cryptonomicon episode when I talked about the parable of the bad DM, of like yeah, yeah. the DM who's like. I'll tell you eventually. And you're like, God <laughs> right. damn it. That's not fun. And yeah. Like, and that whole middle section of cryptonomicon where we're like, Oh, like we know that we're headed somewhere, but like, he's just not tipping the cards enough because he wants us to be in that suspenseful place. And yeah, I think what's so interesting about this one is that journeyman doesn't know. Letham has done a really good job of setting up why he doesn't know and yeah. it's it's due to his relationship with Todd Bomb as perceived by the village, but also because of the place that Journeyman has put himself his entire life. Like yeah. he has chosen to sit in that spot at the feet of Todd Bomb. Um, yep. There's that wonderful moment when Todd Bomb is kind of fucking with Edwin Gorse in in like a really cruel way, where he just yeah. keeps flip flopping what's happening in the world out there. Uh, yeah, and he says something that journeyman was like, oh my gosh, that's the same thing he said to me in our college dorm, like almost 40 years ago. And there's this yeah. moment when journeyman realizes like, have I been Todd Baum's dupe this entire time? 
Um, and I think that is the growth. I think that's the change that we see because the structure up until this point in Journeyman's life has been Todd Bomb telling Journeyman stories and Journeyman having to like write them down. And the last image we're left with is Journeyman tells Todd Bomb stories. It's Jerome Cormitz's weird pillow book, which is really strange that that's the thing. Um, and, but then there is this sort of nice image that as journeyman is telling those stories to Todd bomb, kind of flipping the script, he is also throwing the pages into the ocean. Um, so making this kind of a story of a one-time only story. Yeah. That's the piece where I'm like, oh, okay. That's the change. That's the big shift is that journeyman has kind of turned the tables on Todd bomb. And then my next question is like, is that enough for me? <laughs> well, I mean, the more profound version of that to me is the moment where the trap has been sprung. Mm -hmm. And and Todd Baum is in the claws and he is being dragged to the tower. And, and then he starts, he singles out Journeyman. And Journeyman does have to make a choice in this moment right now. Although to me, I didn't find it to be a very suspenseful choice because... I've, to me, I felt like the spell of Talbaum had been broken at this point. Mm -hmm. But basically, Journeyman does this thing that's sort of like recognizable from this kind of story, which is like he tries to talk the villain down. And what's really funny is that the villain's having none of it, but neither is the town. <laughs> you know, like he, he's like, Talbaum, come out. Like, you know, we don't need, it doesn't need to end this way. Like, we'll find a job for you. And they're not trying to kill you. They're just neutralizing you. It's just, and, and then Maddie's is like, nah, actually, we're not finding a job for you. We're, 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 we're sticking your ass on this island forever. But he's right. We're not killing you. So that part was right. And, and it's, it's like, it's funny, but it is sort of like, I do feel like in that moment, you get the sense at least he's it's he's it's ritual, right? Like the power of ritual is one of the things he is performing his role and basically saying, like, I am not going to help you. I am on the side of the peninsula and not you. And he does that in a very public way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sort of that kind of like the change takes place slowly. You know, it's not it's not doesn't necessarily happen at one moment. He's already it takes it, it begins when Taubbaum seduces or whatever his sister, you know, decades before, and it's this long process. Mm -hmm. And I think that moment on the island where he's like, come out of there, you know, um, that's, that's the end of it. It's the end of a very long, slow journey that journeyman yeah. takes. Uh, is it enough? I, I think it is. Um, and and I think that I've learned something about how you can deploy a protagonist um, in the service of a broader story. Because I don't think, I think that trying to tell the story from Maddie's perspective or Aster's perspective would just feel kind of like a, a Hardy Boys novel, mm -hmm. you know, or 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 something like that. Or or it would feel like you'd have to do one of those things where like, you know, the narration is like. Maddie stayed up and tossed and turned all night. And then she had an idea and slept 
peacefully the rest yeah. of the night. And then like the next scene is like building the lobster claw. Yeah. Like basically you're 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 se- you're separating the listener from the third person point of view that they've been used to for the sake of the suspense. And this way you don't have to do it. We mm-hmm. can be in um journeyman the entire time and encounter the story as he's encountering it. And in fact, maybe that works better for the kind of allegorical tale this is. But I'm curious, is it enough for you? Yes. Um, yeah, yes with caveats. And I just, I want to say like in terms of the structure, something you just like described, you know, a, a, very, a very standard structure for any kind of narrative work is uh, outsider arrives and disturbs natural order. And right. I think the reason that this is working in this particular case that you just pointed out is that this is a strange story where both the narrator and the outside irritant are both outsiders. And yeah. that's what makes what you just described successful, where journeyman is always kind of kept at bay at arm's length. Um, and that allows him to discover the story at the same pace that we do. Um, right. Yeah, I think in terms of structuring, this book is a masterwork. Like you said, Maddie's revenge is served very cold and very hot at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally hot, almost nuclear meltdown hot. Um, but it is it is like, a, you know, it is served decades later. Um, and and I think the beautiful part is it's not even revenge it is that is that she's I mean, she's just like, I don't care about this guy. Yeah. I, I, I just I, I know what he is and right. I'm going to stop him. Yeah, she understands him and he does not understand her or who they are together. Like, right. again, he imagines them as the kind of like proto gods of this new world. And right. she's like, it, it's not a new world. It's the same world. And you don't have a place in it because you're you're destructive. Um, right. Is it enough for me? Yes. But um, the thing that you said about the fact that the town has already kind of decided um, does take some of the possible um, suspense and, and it deflates the narrative a little bit. The fact mm. that Todd Baum is kind of losing his power as we go into the, the wintertime. Um, other than Theodore Nowlin, who just ends up being kind of a clueless guy. Yeah. Um, and Edwin Gorse, who is sort of sadly disposed of. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, I think it would. I, I think there is. I think it's the only missed opportunity in what is otherwise like a pretty nearly perfect piece of writing. Um, yeah. That the the second half of the book savors slightly of anticlimax because, uh, because the town has decided and we're just experiencing the town's plan through journeyman's clueless eyes. And so when it arrives, there is very little like actual, there, there isn't a decision that needs to be made. There's an opposition of allegory and drama because the, the more dramatic plot would be say roughly half of the town follows Todd Baum mm-hmm. and is like, no, like we, this guy's our leader now. And like, let's use his machine to crush the motorcycles of the cordon. And another half of the town is like, no. And then there, there would be a conflict between those two halves. And then you could imagine journeyman playing some key role in that conflict in an interesting way. And, th- uh, and that's another kind of story. And I think the, the, 
illusion of that, it, it's a choice. I think that Lethem must be saying something about the strength of this community, mm-hmm. um, you know, and basically saying like, yeah, what's going to save us is not necessarily violence. It's not necessarily dramatic confrontations. It's the kind of relationships and bonds that Maddie and Aster have built that allow them to influence this place. I have right? a, I, I have a joke. <laughs> I have a joke. Okay. This movie, this book, is about the conflict between Michael Bay and Merchant Ivory. <laughs> What's Merchant Ivory? Sorry. Oh, like all of the like like very quiet period piece character films oh. of like mm. uh, like every single like British like um like the piano or uh, uh less dramatic than that like more right. like quieter um like dramas of manners basically right. um like uh, I remains don't know. of the remains of the day sure something yeah something like that right. um i can't think of a good example at the moment but yeah you're totally right like like todd bomb is like bombast and perhaps the perhaps the structure i'm sort of advocating for here a little bit is more in that camp yeah, but I think you're right. I think that Lethem. I do think this is a book that is about story and allegory and myth, and Lethem is arguing for kind of like, like um, the Garden of Eden without the expulsion. And I mean, I also think like he's he's actually saying that in a way that there's a kind of layer of reality that Trump's story too. You know that yes. that like yeah you know. There's, which, like I last time I said, oh, I think what's going to happen is Journeyman's going to have to find a way to tell an alternative story to like sway the town away from Tabbaum. Totally wrong. I was totally wrong because it, that was not necessary. And the reason it wasn't necessary is that these people are back to the landers. They have discovered something essential about their relationship to the land. And basically they've discovered what you need to survive even if electronic and internet and chemical technology doesn't work. They've mm-hmm. figured out that you can actually have a pretty good life, you know, with roughly like 19th century technology, mm-hmm. particularly if you all stick together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is like, maybe that's its own story, but it's not like we never see Maddie like reading Laura Ingalls Wilder to people or, you know what I mean? Like it, 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 that's a story that doesn't need to be told to these people in this town because that the whole fucking reason they're there is because they already buy that story, right? You know, and um, and so it's like it turns out that the power of myth ends up being a little bit of a red herring in this book. I think, mm-hmm. you know, that Todd Baum and that and also you know the 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 Corden too have a story that they're telling themselves about all of this. And their threat is basically eliminated once that story is punctured. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, story does prove to be powerful. But at the same time, that you know, Maddie's like, I don't care about any of that. I know who this guy is. We're going to stop him. Yeah. You know, I got to figure out, like, the first thing she does is, like, test the tensile strength of the blue streak with a hammer and a blowtorch. And that was mysterious, but then it makes sense later. You know, she was performing some kind of like, okay, can I shatter the glass with a hammer? How does it react if you hit it with a blowtorch? You know, like she's doing these like, <coughs> she's not interested in the story. She's just like, what is this thing made of and how yeah. am I get, How are we going to stop it? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, uh, for her, the story does not have a place for this character. Like she right. is unwilling to take part in a narrative with this character. And so she removes that character. It's kind of amazing. Uh, She's kind of like Athena, 
Like she yeah. is this, she's this figure that operates outside of the bounds of normal, normal existence, even for gods, you yeah. know, because like, yeah, she does, she does arrive without, in a very different way than all the other gods. And Maddie, Maddie kind of plays that same role and it's marvelous. Yeah. It is, it is. And it is, and she's such a great character and it's, you know, it's a little bit sad because journeyman and Maddie's relationship is a bit damaged. She doesn't quite trust him and she's a little bit disappointed with him, but you know, she still loves him and he's her brother. And in the end he kind of does the th- the right thing, even if it's sort of the stakes are not, she has, she's basically set it up. So he can't sabotage her <laughs> plan. Um, but you know, he does what he can to help. He helps in small ways, and then he goes back to being who he's going to be. And, and um, yeah, it's bittersweet. It's a little bit sad. You know, I would have maybe hoped that he would have played more of a heroic role, you know, and gotten the girl. And he plays a, like, not a total disastrous role and, like, and, flirts and with the girl. Kisses the girl. <laughs> kisses the girl. I think once, and, and, twice. And, and, and gets a, like, we'll see what happens when he asks for a follow-up date. I know? know. It's great. Yeah, it is. it is a novel that, like kind of luxuriates in its soft landings. Yeah. And and that's I think that's awesome. You know, yeah. a, a, like particularly in a novel that um you know, it's hard to look at Todd Bomb and not see the um the depredations of the Trump era. Um you know, sure. uh, I mean like that whole chapter of The Last American where he is just he's basically post truth. He's just doing this like, well, here's the truth. And um, tells a story, Gorse falls for it. And then he's like, here's another truth. And Journeyman actually points out, this was the penultimate truth. The truth that was coming before the next truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it would be so attractive for, I think, an author, you know, and we're, we're starting to do the thing where maybe we're projecting, you know, politics onto the author. But assuming that this author thinks that post truthiness is a bad thing. Um, it would be really attractive to like give journeyman, you know, like, like a big role in the victory. Um, and, and instead he, he holds back from that, I think in, in a really, uh, in a really tasteful and interesting way, in a way that clearly we're both like, huh, what an interesting choice. In a Western, he'd be played by Jimmy Stewart. And about halfway through, he'd be like, don't you see? He keeps telling a different lie. He tells one lie and then he tells another lie. You can't believe anything this guy says. Meanwhile, my sister's got a plan to save us from the cordon. You're going to listen to her? A woman you've known for the last 20 years? You're going to go with him? You know? That's that's definitely the cold <laughs> open of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> that was That was amazing. <laughs> What a good Jimmy Stewart. You just got to get really worked up and be very sincere about something that should be obvious to everybody, but they're so thick they can't see it. Should be plain as the nose in their face. <laughs> I've never practiced Jimmy Stewart. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting from your depiction of it. It's like you have to have very tight lips. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, the, the, the throat is rather tight, and, and the... Um, the, the the air is escaping through the tiniest of portcullises. It's sort of a, a, a close relationship to vocal fry, plus a kind of a, a, a like a shouty a shoutiness, yeah, and, and a shoutiness for sure. 
Uh, he never speaks softly. No, never. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gosh, how do we uh, how do we follow that? <laughs> well, uh, you had a you want to get to either your reading or the list of our illusions. Yeah, the list of illusions. Um, I, I just kind of want to touch on it and see if you picked up any other ones. I, I mean, like they started to pile up in a way that yeah. I was like, "What's going on here?" Um, yeah, you know, I there's mean, one there's one big one I noticed. Okay, but, um, yeah, I would love to know that one if it's another one from from those or if you're if you're a plus one in one of these. Um, in in that um, in the last American chapter, uh, he he describes himself as a pair of ragged claws, which is a line from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which is the I think the second uh, T. S. Eliot illusion. If mm. if I was right about those series of questions early on, um, and the fact that we do have another T. S. Eliot illusion here makes me think that maybe I was right. Um, because like yeah, the wasteland fits. I mean, from what's what's going on here, um, you know, Prufrock is not really a admirable character in that poem, and so it is one of those moments where you think like, gosh, is Todd Bomb just like, is Todd Bomb the Ronald Reagan figure of putting "Born in the USA" as his uh, as mm. his campaign music? Um, because alluding to yourself, it, it, putting yourself in Prufrock land is not great. Um, and then a room of one's own is, of course, Virginia Woolf. But the way it's also described really sounds like The Matrix or any of these mm. other stories where, like, oh, we're not actually bodies; we are brains in jars being stimulated in certain ways. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, I know that Lethem obviously reads a ton. Uh, what was yeah. the one? What was the illusion that you picked up on? Oh well, just like what were they building up there? Uh, you know, the, the Tom Waits. A Tom Waits song. Yeah. Yeah. And Tom Waits is occasionally post-apocalyptic too, right? And and there's also something of like the wanderer um, in that. Yeah. I mean, that that was that was it. You mm -hmm. know the, that. Yeah, and it's one of those things where I'm sort of like, huh, like what's what's going on with these? Like, are these, um, you know, is it the kind of thing that is uh, Lethem just kind of can't help himself? I mean, he is picking. I mean, A Room of One's Own is an odd one because, like, that is essentially a book about writing and, like, what you need to write effectively and tell stories. But in this version, he's really inverted it and made it a terrible post-apocalyptic idea that The Room of One's Own is your brain and you're trapped in it. Mm. Um, which, you know, actually does, again, kind of fit with the story. Yeah, I mean, I I feel I don't know that 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 uh, Elliot poem. I, I'm I'm um, they're more erudite than I am. Um, I mean, I think there's. I do think that part of what's going on here is this is characterization of Todd Baum, mm -hmm. which is that he has a really hard time of thinking any thinking about anything without relating it to a story mm, you know like even yeah. like when he's commenting on the trap and he's talking about he keeps at one point he throws he's like ah i i like what you're doing here you know everything on all every dollar on the screen you know like that that that's he is so immersed in the world of storytelling that he can't get out of it um so yeah i don't know what to make of the ragged claws i don't know what to make of a room of one's own um i mean it just it it's there's just a dizzying array of allusions mm -hmm. to different kinds of post-apocalyptic images 
and I don't know that I don't know that Lethem intends much more than characterization of Todd Baum. Yeah. And Todd Baum's way of sort of making sense of of the world. Um, but I don't know, maybe there's more to it than that. I think that I mean that sound that sounds sound to me, especially from what we've talked about, that like, you know, Maddie is kind of operating in a post story environment. Um, right. and, uh, Todd bomb is not, and that is kind of the, the primary conflict of the book. And like you said, once, um, Todd bomb is kind of eliminated, the Corden story deflates as well. And they kind right. of back away. There's even that wonderful scene where, um, uh, Mrs. Pritchings, uh, like feeds them at the farm and they all kind of wander off in this like pie induced haze. It's a, it's a very like, um, uh, Francis McDermott in Fargo scolding the murderers, sort of like, now why did you go and do that? You know, <laughs> at a moment. And in one sense, the Corden is kind of ashamed of their behavior, too. And they're at great pains to basically say, like, oh, yeah, we didn't kill. Um, I mean, they, they I can't, re- Gorse dies, but it sounds like it was kind of a, like, fist fight that might have gotten out of control and mm-hmm. turned into a fire. It doesn't seem like the cordon was necessarily they were they were certainly using violence and intimidation. Didn't seem like they wanted to kill anybody. They basically just wanted everybody to do what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And when it when the violence escalated to the point of death, it seems like they were a little bit of ashamed. And I even think that's kind of interesting anecdotally too. You know that a lot of times you have these post-apocalyptic scenarios like the road where you have these bands of, and in many cases, like rural, less educated, working class Americans reverting to a kind of really savage uh, tribal behavior, uh, a kind of brutal brutality, uh, you know, murderous and that that's not the cordon is they're they're not they 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 fi- they feel that the world is violent and so they have to use violence but they seem to also be trying to retain some sense of ethics and morality too and they're just the provocation of Todd Baum's machine is too much for them yeah you know but that that and and when that's taken away one does have the sense of them kind of slinking home you know being like yeah I guess guess we got a little out of control there didn't we you know even when fear will fear will do that yeah totally and and even when um you know uh cormance is discovered um having hanged himself or been hanged uh it's the cordon that leaves a note that basically says this was here when we got here we didn't do this you know with that same kind of like this is not what we wanted to do or have happen yeah yeah and that i like i like that I like that it's a different version. It's a nice variation on the sort of post-apocalyptic violence you sometimes see in these kinds of stories, too. Um, uh, I had a question for you about, or are you queuing a reading? Or I've got a I reading, a but why don't you, why don't you uh, do your question, and then we'll do my reading, and then we'll go to trivia. Well, I, I'm just curious, what, what do you see the DNA of, of, where do you see the DNA of this book, or what are the literary Whoa. God, what are the literary references to this? Or, um, I mean, it is it's it's firmly in the canon of um, things are reasonably stable, and someone from outside disturbs that stability, and um, you know, a bigger ant gets dropped in the jar, and then the jar gets shook. Um, mm-hmm. 
literary, but yeah, what are its literary sort of DNA? Um, that's a really good question. I'm sure there are hundreds. I mean, I, you know, I, I always come back to Chekhov. That, that's sort of like one of my touchstones. But the nature of every Chekhov play okay. is act one, everyone arrives. Act two, nothing happens. Act three, everything happens. Act four, everyone leaves. <laughs> and this book does have that shape a little bit. Um, Insofar as we do get a lot of our backstory and flashback and whatnot, we do get a lot of those Starlet Hotel moments. And that kind of is like act two. That's mm-hmm. that's in our experience of the book. Not much is happening in present day. Mm-hmm. Character development. Yeah, exactly. Because we're, we're not really like, or the camera is not trained on the settlement at that time. It's it's trained in the past. And we get a few snips, snippets of that. And I'd say act three is really like, Everything from um, after Todd Baum's um, uh, special writer uh, chapter about Pittsburgh, where he does begin to like lose his shit. Um, Act three is really the building of the trap and the springing of the trap. And then act four is kind of the aftermath. So um, so Eugene O'Neill comes up too, like any, any of the giant American playwrights where like we have a, a stable environment that somebody bananas comes into. I guess the Iceman Cometh really rings mm-hmm. a bell as well. Um, another story about a wheeler or dealer who gets in over his head. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't disagree with any of those. They, ha- they did not occur to me. Um, the, the, where I immediately, the, to me, the two main sources of this novel that I sense are Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, and, and I don't, I haven't read very many Bradbury novels, but just the sort of, it just reminds me of kind of silver age science fiction in general, you know, just like the contraptionness of the blue streak. Um, and it just, it just, it, it has the feel of the Martian Chronicles to me. And then the short chapters and the kind of varying tone and pace and structure just really reminds me of Kurt Vonnegut. Like, I don't feel like there's any way this novel exists without Cat's Cradle Mm. or Breakfast of Champions or Slaughterhouse Five. It just feels, you know, and, and I think there's lots of other places you would pull from. I'd be very curious if he's read Kim Stanley Robinson, you know, who's a sci-fi writer who's written some, uh, kind of like, post-apocalyptic pastoral stuff as well as some Martian stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, to me, those two just seem really profound, especially the, the Von, I mean, the, the, the structure of the chapters really, really reminded me of Vonnegut mm-hmm. and Vonnegut's interesting. I feel like Vonnegut feels like an interesting fit for upper middle brow. I feel like Vonnegut has that thing with literary among Vonnegut's reputation among people of a literary sensibility is somewhat troubled, I think, because sort of like the Grateful Dead, because some of Vonnegut's fan base is problematic. Uh-huh. And, and and so I sometimes think Vonnegut gets a bad rap, but he's, you know, I find him to be a very extraordinarily inventive, experimental writer and and profoundly influential. He's a real he's a real blank spot for me. I've read so little. Uh, Vonnegut. Hmm. Uh, that might be a good uh, series for us. Is do a few, a few, a few Vonnegut yeah. books. 
Yeah, that'd be interesting. This reminds me, the tone of this reminds me a lot of Cat's Cradle Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe Breakfast of Champions. Um, Do you have a reading? I do, yeah. And this is more, just, I I just loved it. I loved the, um, I loved the imagery of it. And yeah, it's, um, I think it's one of those passages that um, I enjoy because it is so far from like the way that I usually tend to write, uh, which is, you know, like I, I just, I really enjoy that sentence that keeps unspooling. <laughs> mm. um, it's very often to the detriment of the of my writing, but whatever, it's who I am. We can always, you can always sure. edit. Um, but this is um, uh, chapter sixty nine, another rest, another arrest, part mm. two. The moon climbed and shrank. Lucius brewed morning tea on the remains of the central campfire. He wouldn't let anyone else make it. He was fed up with their bad cooking here at the end of the world. No fires were lit on this darkening island. They waited. Someone produced a guitar. There was always a guitar. The coffee went around and cake too. There was always cake in foil that had been painstakingly rinsed and dried a hundred times. Some stood on the beach watching the sea glitter. Ed futzed at the winches. As the dark fell, their eyes adjusted. Soon it was evident that they had watchers on that other shore, new occupants of Founders Park, Cordon people. They'd lit fires of their own, presumably stood watching, looking out as those on Quarry Island looked out. They'd have read the signs, the tread marks grinding into the water. The blue streak was strung between them on its way, but nearer to the island now, quite near the island. In the park, two fires, one bigger than the other. One grew and grew and then the roof lit, revealing the shape. The whole frame erupted. They'd torched the gazebo. Down by the water, Augustus went on quietly talking with others about Edwin Gorse, about what he and Journeyman had seen in the charred kitchen. They spotted the disturbance in the water, the churning in the field of moonglint, as if a pot of spaghetti had come to boil beneath the waves, a seething tracked by wheeling black birds. Shouldn't it be seagulls, not crows? Crows were perhaps Todd Bomb's special envoy. They flapped off overhead into the trees. The water's dancing reflection gave way to the lifting glow. The bald, pale lamp seeping up from the floor of the harbor, a kind of reply to the moon. Haloed within, two figures riding, Mr. Todd in his motor car, and, bent over his shoulder, the idiot Gandalf Nowlin. Sit down! Journeyman begged Nowlin silently in the instant before the trap was sprung. He was an old man, after all. Mm. It is. It's lovely. the uh, The rhythm of the sentences remind me of like uh, Hemingway or or Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, short, declarative. One yep. sentence is doing one thing per time. You get a very good visual sense of it. I love that uh, the doubled moon, the moon above, and then like the sort of, you can really see the dome of the blue streak kind of like lighting the seawater and kind of coming up out of it. Because like, you know, we've spent time in the coast of Maine. It's pretty clear water. And like a light underneath that water at night would be amazing and strange and haunting. And and I really feel like he just absolutely nailed those, that first page and a half of that chapter in terms of setting the scene, setting the tension, 
um, really giving us the calm before the final storm. And then I love the Mr. Toad and his motor car with all of its implications of insanity and an idiot Gandalf. I, it's just, it's, I loved it. It's such a, it's such a brilliant passage. And, and laden with references too. Also, it's a callback to that very first two pages, you know, with the crows Mm. and, and and what we come to, what we later realize is that what we're getting in the, that those first two pages is a sort of sense of the loom of Todd Baum approaching, you know, over the horizon around the next corner, the crows are singing, you know, he's not there yet, but he's coming, coming, you know, something wicked this way comes you know, um, it, it, when you hear the crows again, um, it, it takes us back to that moment. Too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. All right. Trivia. Well, we do, a, do you have trivia? Yeah. I, I do have trivia this time. Okay. And um, I guess we decided host goes first, yep. uh, asks first. Okay. Yep. Let, me call, let me call up my trivia document. So, you know, the, the sort of final climactic... Um, uh, encounter happens on Quarry Island. Uh, Quarry Island reminds me a lot of an island off Stonington called Crotch Island, uh, which is a quarry. Uh, but there are many, many islands in Maine uh, that were once quarries. There's also Vinyl Haven and North Haven were quarries. And which of the following is not the actual name of a quarry in Maine? Oh, boy. And I'm going to give you four. Okay. And so you have to pick the one that's not an actual quarry. Okay. The Tarbox Quarry, the Pink Diamond Quarry, the Fish Quarry, the Wormwood Quarry. Hmm. Tarbox, Fish, Diamond, Wormwood. Yeah, it's Pink Diamond. Pink Diamond. I'm going to go with Fish. It is the pink diamond. Damn it. (laughs) Good use of an extra detail to throw me off. (laughs) The fish quarry. Yeah, it's interesting, but it's like it. Yeah. What a weird name for a quarry. Right. There was a fish quarry. Uh, There was a black diamond quarry. And many of the quarries were noted for their pink granite. So mm. I sort of that's why that's why I went up. with that. Yeah. I was like I was like you know what there is a kind of granite that really does have that pink thing to it. And I was like I, that's that's that that seems plausible to me. But good a nice piece of misdirection. Okay, so in this illusion heavy book, um, mm. it is very hard not to look at the actual structure of the climax um, and not to hear. Uh, hoist to his own petard. Um, Mm. And also because we know there's a lot of illusions, so Hamlet is always there. So, is a petard, and there are several options here. One, a bomb. Two, a rope and pulley system. Three, a fart. D, two of the above, Shakespeare did really enjoy paired meanings or E all three of those options. Oh, Oh my God. Um, that's a great one. Ah, I think, I think you're going to trick me. Um, I think it is, D, two of the above. You are right. 
And I think it is a pulley system and a fart. It is a bomb and a fart. Oh. It is, it is anything but a rope and pulley system. Uh, yeah, a, a petard is uh, is a bomb. Uh, the uh, the the section that Hamlet is talking about, it's really it does get confusing because of the verb hoist, and so people are often like, oh, like you take the person and like you run them up the flagpole. Um, right. Hoist in Elizabethan times also had another meaning, which basically meant like do anything that puts them like up in the air. Right. And the reference is blown, a, blown up, blown basically. up. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reference is an engineer host to hoist to his own petard. Um, and an engineer was like a sapper or somebody who would blow things up. Right. Um, right. however, as with Shakespeare, you keep digging a little bit. Um, pet, uh, just the word pet, um, is a sort of, um, uh, corruption of French. Um, and people are pretty sure that it means fart. Um, yeah. and there is a section as the blue streak is coming across, uh, the Harbor and Lethem spends enough time to draw our attention to the fact that it seems like the blue streak has farted. Um, and I yes. was like, this is 100% a Hamlet illusion now at this point. And, and we talked about DNA earlier. Hamlet is very much in the DNA of mm -hmm. this novel. I think, you know, journeyman's sort of uncertainty although i was joking with you the other day and it's like it's like it's hamlet and then ophelia is like god hamlet ah, you're worthless and then just like goes to fortinbras and has claudius arrested for fratricide you know while hamlet's like kind of figuring out like how to hire the actors or yeah. whatever <laughs> um, the maddie is a sort of action taking ophelia yeah which would be uh, that, that would be great such a such that a wonderful would. inversion of uh of of hamlet but uh yeah nice work uh you got the fact that uh it was it is a paired meaning of fart and bomb well and i will say that there's an automana poetic quality to petard and fart and so that's what kind of gave that away for mm. me i was like yeah i think that um Petard does sound like a fart, but it can't just be a fart. Uh, so that was, but I, I, of course, I was wrong about the other part. But that's all right. I'll that's take fine. the win. Yep, I'll take, take the win. win. Uh, Chris Bag, yes. will uh, you read the arrest again in your lifetime? Yeah, I will. I think there will be a time where, like, maybe I will be at the coast or something, or maybe in a cabin, and um, it's the kind of book that unfolds nicely in settings like that. It's easy to read. It's yep. It's full of depth. It's entertaining. Um, it's thought-provoking. Yeah, I will certainly read this book again before I die. How about you? I think so. Um, I certainly like the the setting that you're talking about. Like on a vacation makes a lot of sense. But I would also, even without that, I would imagine that like in ten years, I would just be curious to see what I see in it that mm -hmm. I missed this time. It's it's so laden with little details and references and it's an allegory. And I feel like, I feel like I'm getting some of the allegory, but I don't think I quite have all of it. I think there are layers and meanings in there that I haven't quite, and also uh, that I haven't quite figured out. And also as an aspiring writer, I think the structure of it is really enviable um, and interesting. I'm curious how he kept me interested for so long with a protagonist who didn't do anything. And um, so I can imagine going back to it to learn um, something about the craft of writing, too. 
Yeah. Excellent selection. Uh, oh. This was a wonderful draft for Upper Middle Bro. Nice. Yeah, it's good because I was sort of like, I didn't know anything about it. I knew it sort of fit in with my theme of the future sucks. And uh, yeah, it, it really delivered. And like a lot of post-apocalyptic books, maybe the future doesn't suck that badly. That's Todd Baum would be like Todd Baum's critique of it would be like you can tell he doesn't really think the future sucks. <laughs> Lethem just wants to go grow some spinach on the coast of Maine. So uh, what's next? We are going to uh, transition from the coast of Maine to the depths of space uh, as we read Andy Weir's uh, most recent novel, Project Hail Mary. It is a it is a snack of a book. I read it when it came out, um, and I'm looking forward to reading it again. I'll probably devour it in about two days. It it reads fast. It's like it's like swallowing cream. Yeah. It is a delicious read. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the journeyman storytellers, wax candle makers and homesteaders. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Beck. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. Thanks for listening, everybody.